Before we start the podcast, we wanted to let you know about WestOS. If you're a teacher or pupil at a school in Scotland, then you now have access to hundreds of quality assured video lessons created by teachers to support your remote learning. You should be able to find WestOS within the app library of Glow, where you can add the tile to your own personal launchpad. Click on the tile and you'll have immediate access to stream lessons in every area of the Scottish curriculum, with video lessons already available for biology at National 5, Higher and Advanced Higher. Now let's get on with the podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Lecky Textbooks, Revision Guides and Practice Papers. Everything you need to learn, review and prepare for your SQA exams. Browse the books at www.leckyscotland.co.uk and get 40% off using the discount code LECKYPODCAST40. You can now also collect Young Scott reward points by using the codes within the description of each episode to claim discounts and rewards on their website www.young.scot. In September, we published a special episode with Professor Jason Leach to discuss coronavirus and the introduction of face coverings in schools. We learned about the National Clinical Director's own school experience and his journey to standing next to the First Minister during recent daily news briefings to the nation. Since then, there have been a number of changes to guidelines which impact schools. So as promised, he's come back on the podcast to provide us with more information. In this special episode of the Higher Biology podcast, we discuss some of the new guidelines that have been introduced across the nation. We talk about the reasons behind increasing the use of face coverings in schools and discuss the pros and cons of keeping the windows open in classrooms and labs as we head into winter. We will hear how confident he is that the Higher Biology exam will go ahead and even whether we can expect the Hamden Roar to return at Euro 2020 next summer. Jason Leach, welcome back to the Higher Biology Podcast. Thanks, Paul. It's nice to be back. I, I don't get I don't often get second gigs, so it must have it must have not been terrible. It wasn't terrible, I don't think. We obviously we last spoke back in early September when face coverings were introduced for pupils and staffs in corridors and communal areas of schools. That advice has changed a little bit since then. Can you tell us the changes that have been made and the reasons behind making those changes? Yeah, so face coverings is one of the things that's, that's evolved, let's call it, right through the pandemic as we've, as we've begun to understand the nature of this infection, the nature of how it's transmitted and who it affects the most. And one of the things is that we've learned a lot about how it happens, how it behaves inside rooms, particularly indoors, like where there's little ventilation or where there's a crowd. And it hangs in the air longer than we thought. It's not it's not in the air when you're walking around the street, so it's it's not as bad as that. But it does hang in the air longer than we originally thought. And face coverings are one of the ways we can protect ourselves against that. Because if you have the virus, it you might not know, and when you speak or cough or sing or whatever you do, your droplets containing the virus, microscopic virus, could be in the air, and then others could breathe that in. So the so the the face coverings are not foolproof. They don't make you immune to the virus and you still have to distance and you still have to wash your hands and you still have to do everything else. One of the things that worries me about them is I think people think it gives them like a rocket man shield somehow 
that you're somehow protected. You're not. It's just another layer of protection. So we've added in, if possible, if no exemptions, then senior pupils should wear them as much as they possibly can. And and I know it's a pain in the neck. I'm I'm wearing them at work a lot more now, walking about the corridors, public areas. I, and you get you get used to them. You find one that you like. The first couple I I thought were a bit weren't as comfortable. Maybe it's big ears, big face. I don't know. And over time, you get you get a little bit. You get find one that works for you and stick with. So yeah, so that's all senior pupils um, are obviously now being encouraged to wear those in, in lessons and teachers too. Um, coronavirus, just like any other airborne virus, will spread wherever there's groups of people, as you said, particularly indoors. On that assumption, schools, one assumes, are a place where coronavirus can be transmitted and sacrifices are obviously being made elsewhere in society to help us keep the schools open. What can young people and teachers do to reduce the risk of transmission then in school? Um, and how important is this, is it for us all to recognise the sacrifice being, being made elsewhere when we come to thinking about what we do outside of school in terms of following the guidelines? I think it's a good point, Paul. I've tried to describe, I don't know if this works. Maybe I did it the last time I was on. I, I've tried to think of, so, so if you've got a bucket and you're allowed so much risk in the bucket for your whole country, and you might be Singapore or you might be Estonia or you might be Scotland, and you decide until you get a vaccine, until you get out the other end of this, you're allowed to take so much risk because you can't close down the whole country. So we've decided to put schools in the bucket. So that, of course, leads to more mixing at the gates. It leads to children and teachers and staff mixing inside the school. So there's potential for transmission. So now we've not got so much space in the bucket anymore. So what else do you want to put in? Well, you need to have funerals in the bucket. You need to have weddings in the bucket. You can have some further and higher education in the bucket. You can have a little bit of care homes and hospitals. So now the bucket's getting fuller and fuller. If the bucket overflows, then numbers will begin to rise exponentially and we'll be in trouble. So schools are first and the biggest priority because of what schools are, not just educationally, but in supportive ways, in mental health ways, teamwork, food, clothing for some, for some young people. So they're so important that we've decided to put them in the bucket first. I'm not sure if that metaphor works, but it works, it works for me. And therefore, outside school becomes really, really important if, if you want to keep schools in the bucket. So how not only I behave, I'm never in a school, but how people who are in schools behave outside the school matters too, because you can't fill the bucket. If you do, everything shuts, because the numbers will reach such levels that we'll have to go back to March the 23rd. And and I guess we've all been moved to tears in recent weeks, and and with some of those changes that, that we've kind of talked about there. And by that, of course, I'm referring to the local tiers that have been implemented around the country, depending on the rate of the virus in different regions. Can you give us a sort of brief outline of the new system and, and what does that mean for young people in schools? So there's three ways of controlling this pandemic globally now. And remember, we're learning all the time, all the time. So this doesn't feel like it did in March. So you can, you can lock down your country for quite a long time get the virus to very low levels, and then stop anybody coming in. That's what New Zealand has done. It's what Australia has done. It's what the Faroe Islands has done. It's quite difficult to do in Europe because of the nature of people moving with land borders, with airports, all of that. So that's one version. 
The other version is open and close, open and close, open and close, open and close. And you can see some US states doing that, but that gets you in trouble because you end up with big numbers and then you have to shut down, but you've caused harm as you do it. And then version three is what you see in most other parts of the world, the Asia-Pacific, most of Europe, Scotland, England. And that is a more proportionate geographic response because Orkney is not Sucky Hall Street. And Orkney has almost no virus and Glasgow has 600 cases a day. So it would seem appropriate if you can to adjust the way you try and restrict people's behaviours until you get a vaccine inside them. And that's what the regional approach is trying to do. I've got five levels and a bit confusingly they start at zero, but they start at zero because level one, two and three are roughly the same as the English levels. And that's why we wanted to create one, two, and three, a bit like England have got one, two, and three. But we've also got a zero, which is a bit more normal, and a four, which is a bit more like lockdown. Schools are open at all levels, but there is words of caution once you get to level four. So it, it won't be that schools would have to close across the whole of Stirling or across the whole of Aberdeen, but as you get more restricted, Schools just have to be more careful. And could that could that mean that we maybe expect to see a move to a different style of learning then for some areas if they did go to tier four? I, I don't think you'll see it across a whole local authority. So you would let's say, let's say, for example, you moved to Dumfries and Galloway to, to level four. They are actually doing quite well. You probably wouldn't have to, but if you did that. The the local authority, the public health leaders in Dumfries and Galloway, and the head teachers, the, those in charge of the schools would would have to take a view about what that was looking like. Everybody wants to keep them open as much as we can. But let's say there's an outbreak, a a big outbreak in a school, maybe in the adults or in the senior pupils, then you might have to take a view that some of that would have to be restricted for some time. But I I don't anticipate that being on a big geographical level, but you might have to do it in individual levels. Now, that would be true of a factory or or a... call centre or an office block or a university. And school, schools are not immune to the virus. Young people get less sick from the virus. We know that for sure. But, but they're not immune to catching the virus. So we've got to be careful. We've got to protect everybody both in the school and around the school. Uh, and I guess the original lockdown earlier in the year obviously has had an impact on the education of so many children and young people. Were alternatives to lockdown modelled in the early stages of the pandemic? And I guess what have we learned since then? And should we maybe be valuing the the role of scientists more as a result? Obviously, as a higher biology podcast, we're into encouraging the the scientists of the future. The challenge in the early days, Paul, was so in February, when when we kind of learned of this respiratory virus, we, we didn't know. We didn't know what it was, what it caused, who it killed who it hurt, and we didn't really know much about its transmission. So we've learned as we've gone. Now, we've learned remarkably quickly around the world, and the WHO have led that learning for us. So, yes, in a sense, we modelled other versions of lockdown, but pretty much every country in the world did some version of lockdown. Some people, for instance, say Sweden didn't lockdown. That's not true. Sweden did lockdown. They had a different version of it, a bit more voluntary, a bit less law, but that's Swedish. That's not to do with the virus. That's to do with the culture of of the country you're trying to help. And different countries do it in slightly different ways. So now we know a lot more. 
We know about the R number. We know about who gets the illness, who's at risk of the illness, a lot more than we did in February, March. So we can be a little bit more precise. Although no matter how much we learn about this virus, it's mostly bad. So we still find ourselves in a position where we're trying to catch up with it all the time and we really need the science to get us out the other end. I think we obviously all want to see schools remain open as fully as possible. Um, And we discussed last time we've all got a role to play in that. What would you say to anyone that's maybe not taking the guidelines as seriously as they might or they maybe should right now? It's so difficult, isn't it? Uh, Sometimes it feels a bit abstract, this disease, so it feels like it's somewhere else. Somebody else has got it. Somebody else's problem. It doesn't matter to me, to my family. The, the The difficulty here is that if I have diabetes, then you don't care. Well, you might care if you like me, but you do, it doesn't affect you in any meaningful way. My diabetes is just for me. Th- this is not like that. This is an infectious disease at a global level. So therefore, me getting it does affect you, and you getting it affects me, even if it's not direct. Anybody who has this virus is a, is a risk to the whole population, and therefore, everybody's behavior matters to everybody else. Now, that's quite difficult to get across. When you're, when you're living your life, when you're in your school class, when you're the classroom assistant or the te- whatever, because we all see the challenge through our lens, the business we own, the job we do, the school we go to. The reality of a public health challenge, whether it's smallpox or it, this infection, is that everybody's behavior matters to everybody else. And that's why you see us trying to communicate every day with the whole population and have the campaigns and the radio stations and the TV and to try and get everybody to follow the rules because what Frank and Mary do matters to me. And obviously as we head into winter it becomes more and more important and the temperatures are falling at the moment. We mentioned earlier on the the crucial role that ventilation obviously plays in preventing spread of the virus um, and we've been told that I guess since the beginning of the outbreak. What advice would you have for teachers and young people who are starting to feel the chill in the classroom and labs with the windows and doors open? Yeah, so, so I live with a teacher and uh, she's beginning to tell me that's becoming our problem and uh, she likes her radiators on. So the the reality is that it's not an exact science. We don't We don't know this amount of ventilation, this amount of heat, it's not quite as simple as that. We know the virus doesn't like ventilation. And we know the virus likes contained spaces that are enclosed where the air doesn't move and and it likes humidity and warmth. It just, it makes sense. It It can lie in the air longer, it can grow easier, it doesn't die as quickly. So you need some kind of compromise. Now, if you're in the Seychelles, that compromise might be slightly easier than if you're in Elgin. So, so we want some kind of ventilation. So even if that's temporary, so opening the windows for a spell and then closing them again is better than nothing. Opening them at breaks and lunchtime, better than nothing. Having them open all the time is, of course, the best, but we can't have everybody wearing gloves doing their biology uh, study. So, so we, need to, we need to be slightly careful. I did see some schools dispensing with uniform, traditional uniform and buying everybody hoodies that doesn't seem like such a bad idea, an extra an extra layer. But we're not suggesting we should let the snow gather at the back of the classroom with the windows open. So we've got to, we've got to be sensible here. But let's remember the virus, it can get pushed out and get rid of with, with ventilation in the room. So, so if you can even temporarily ventilate classrooms, 
when kids and kids and adults are not there, then that's a good thing. Might cost us a wee bit more for heating, but I'm afraid that's one of the prices we're going to have to. Pay. I've now just got images of people building snowmen in the back of classrooms. Um, it wouldn't be the first time. No, possibly not. The higher biology exams currently scheduled, I think, to take place on the 17th of May, 2021. Given that Wales have announced in recent days that Welsh students will no longer sit equivalent exams and John Swinney's comments this week around reviewing the situation in February again, how confident are you that young people will be sitting a higher biology exam at the end of this academic year? And where would you expect us to be in the battle against coronavirus in February to allow John Swinney to take that decision confidently? Yeah, I'm I'm relatively confident, but you're going to play this back in May, aren't you? And, and the, just when we cancel it, and you say you said you were confident. I, so there's been quite a lot of good news this week. Right? I mean, there's a lot of somber news too. So maybe 300 people lost their lives. We've had uh, 1,200 infections a day. So there's a lot of bad news, but there's some really really good news, and that's around the vaccination. So the the first vaccine. Looks as though it's coming in December, which was unthinkable just a couple of months ago. And it looks as though it works, which is the the key. And that we shouldn't take that for granted. So there are 250 vaccines in development, and this first one out the traps seems to work. Now we don't know if it works for everybody, and so there's a lot still to do. So people shouldn't get overexcited. But by February, we will have vaccinated some of the population, not everybody. Not, not the vast majority of the population, but we'll have vaccinated high-risk groups by then. And by May, we would hope to have got to not everybody, but getting there. That would be in a, a, a phase where we're trying to vaccinate even the low-risk people and younger people for with, with the same vaccine. So I'm hopeful that we'll be in a better place in February than we are now. I don't know that for sure. And an even better place by May. I understand that why why the decision makers have decided let's concentrate on hires and advanced hires and do coursework for uh, the other for national five and national four and th- these other levels. I think that's I think that was the right thing to do to allow focus on trying to get to these such such crucial exams and those higher kids and young people didn't sit exams last year, of course. So it seems it seems about the right balance to try and get those hires done but there is always a chance they won't happen so coursework seems to me and I'm sure you're telling this to your classes coursework seems to me to be important every year but this year might might be slightly more important than previously uh, absolutely you know and, and I think every teacher in the country will be will, will, will be supporting that message you know regardless of the circumstances we should really be hoping that young people are, are, are doing their best on an ongoing basis and an ongoing assessment at all times throughout the year as we would hope for every year it's just Maybe at the forefront of our minds a little bit more this year. A little bit of an, maybe a little bit of an extra incentive. Yeah, I think so. I was never. I have to be. I have to be honest. I was never a great fan of coursework. It is a long time ago, but I was never a great fan of of coursework. But of course, I would if it were now. I would put my head down and work. Out. Yeah, I don't think. I don't think there's any chance that anybody wants to be leaving it late this year. Um, within the with. It, with getting back to the course itself within the sustainability and interdependence unit of the higher course and actually within the life and earth unit of the national five course we look at human pressures on the environment current scientific thinking suggests the virus jumped from bats or possibly pangolins to humans 
which seems like quite a difficult thing for any virus to do. Can you explain what it is about the virus that allowed it to make that jump? It's actually not that difficult. It's actually quite common. So there's a committee in the UK, and every big country has one, and it's called Nerve Tag. Sounds like something from a James Bond movie. It's the New and Emerging Respiratory Virus Threat Assessment Group, Nerve Tag. Now, to, here's a little secret. I didn't know it existed until about January of this year. And there are about 3,000 new infectious agents a year in the world. Some of them come from animals. Some of them come from humans. We, we don't know where some of them come, but something happens. A mutation or something happens. A Nerve Tag looks at them along with the WHO and the version in America and the European CDC and all these groups. And it's very unusual for them to tell anybody because most of them just die off or don't cause any trouble or they just tell the vets because they infect the animals or whatever. And then very occasionally you get one like this. And this one, we'll probably never know exactly where it came from, but it came, we think, from what they call a wet market, which is a market that sells live livestock in China. And the most common route in those uh, transmissions is bats or pangolins. And if you look up a pangolin, it's a, it's a kind of scaly looking reptile. And they are sold for uh, medicine. The scales in particular are very precious and ground down for medicine. And we think that's where it went. So it's very simple. The virus, the virus exists in animals. It it mutates in the animal, and it, that makes it infectious to humans. And, and that can happen, and, and, and then the human then transmits it to another human. And are there any other viruses presently circulating in bats which might do the same thing? There are probably many, many viruses circulating, and the vast majority of them die or just stay where they are. But there is, there is no rule that says this can't happen again. I know that's really, really tricky. But we've got protections in place. You can see what's happened in Denmark around the mink farms over the last little while. You may have noticed that news in the last 10 days where this same coronavirus infected mink mutated and jumped back again. So there's, there's all kinds of environmental challenges here about the farming of animals, about the sale of animals, about how we, re, how we interact with the ecology of the world that are really, really important to study and consider to prevent, to both help with this pandemic, but also to prevent prevent future pandemics. So I guess the the, the uh, I guess the next question is the fact that human pressure on the environment is is causing bats to seek new habitats a, a factor in the increasing frequency of SARS type viruses like coronavirus. I, so that that's one for you rather than me, probably. I, I'm not I'm not sure if there's evidence of that there is evidence that the the way we behave around animals makes it more or less likely so so that there is no risk for instance of it presently in wild mink so scotland has a few wild minks in the forests that stay away from humans and don't come anywhere near us and there's no suggestion that they are any risk at all in terms of infection to humans however if you farm 17 million mink in your country, then there is a risk because they interact with humans much more. It's farming, so therefore there's many, many more interactions with human beings, and that's where the transmission happened. So, so your your fundamental point is correct. 
Human interaction with nature, however that might be, is absolutely crucial. And it's a it's an important subject for young people to study because they're going to have to help us out, out the other end of this, whatever that might look like. And I guess the hope might be that when we have that joined up thinking that, that you know, the Scottish government, uh, the UK government, uh, and in fact, of course, governments across the planet um, start to take a, a, a closer look at sustainability uh, and the environment and, and our interaction with the environment. And you can you can see why that has to be a global response, not just an individual country response, because the, the nature of this pandemic has taught us that global travel, it, which which is going to come back, there isn't any question about that. You need it for global commerce. You need it for import-export. We, we don't make... We don't grow pineapples in this country. The pineapples have got to come from somewhere. And we make a lot of the penicillin for the world, and that's got to go somewhere. So the nature of an infectious agent that can spread through global travel makes the ecology in every country important to Scotland or important to Somalia. So so you've got to answer these questions on an international level, not just on a national level. Sticking with the global travel um, theme, we spoke last time um, about your close working relationship with Nicola Sturgeon and the Cabinet. Um, And in recent weeks, the First Minister has confirmed that Santa Claus is, is of course, a key worker and will be allowed to work this Christmas. But what can the rest of us expect, do you think? Well, we've been through a number of major annual rituals haven't we the tooth, tooth, tooth fairy is still working just in case anybody cares there's somebody that one of one of my colleagues on twitter is in touch with the tooth fairy for our young kids so tooth fairy has ppe santa and the elves have ppe delivered from our procurement center all all sorted so santa and anybody around santa is absolutely designated as a key worker what we do now in these few weeks will be will help us to get to what Christmas might look like. Now, I don't think anybody thinks Christmas will be normal. Christmas will be as it was in 2019 or 2018. So there will have to be caution around Christmas of some kind. We just don't know yet what that caution will look like. But I'm very keen that we get families together as much as we possibly can. But it, it it would seem sensible that, that people thought about what that what that might look like. And we're not going to probably be able to travel to see your family in Australia or our family here in America if you have if you have people there. So so Christmas is going to be different. But it's very important, and I, I did say this, even though the newspapers covered the bit that uh, sounded as though I was cancelling Christmas. Nobody can cancel Christmas. Christmas doesn't Christmas is not cancelable by a virus. But equally, the virus won't take Christmas off. So so you've got to be cautious, even over a big holiday period. Uh, I'm not sure if you get asked this very often at the daily briefings, but what will you be asking Santa for this Christmas? A quicker vaccine is, the, is the, of course, the right answer. But I also need a new MacBook if that's, uh, if that's in Santa's uh, backpack or sack or however he brings things to my house. But in, in terms of the pandemic vaccine and kindness are the two things and that might sound a bit of a cliche but but i think one of the things that's impressed me about community in schools in colleges and in just society around the country in scotland is in the main it's world kindness day today that's why it's in my mind and, and it seems important to me that we hold on to some of that kindness about how we've helped 
people who are maybe a bit more high risk or a bit older in the local communities, the mosques cooking for thousands of people around where they are and the churches having food banks and all of those things. I think we should hold on to that. And I hope Christmas is a time for us to think of that. And and some might suggest that Christmas came early for Scotland last night as we qualified for our first major football tournament in 22 years after the Scottish men's national team beat Serbia in a dramatic fashion after a penalty shootout. Do you think we can expect to see the Tartan army inside Hamden next June and the return of the Hamden Roar? I really hope so, honestly. Somebody suggested today that I should be outside Hamden vaccinating the 50,000 as they go in. Uh, I, I jumped off my sofa just like everybody else did, I think, last night. It was it was absolutely fantastic. And I, I would love to be in, in Hamden. I'd also love to be in Wembley a few weeks later uh, watching us play watching us play England. So the, the hope is that actually that timing isn't ridiculous. Now, I don't know. I, I cannot see with a crystal ball what June will be like and what this virus will do between now and then. But science is working hard. That'll be 15 months after the beginning of this. Vaccines usually take 10 years. The vaccine is coming in less than a year. So science has played an absolute blinder. And the scientists and now the logistics experts, the people who have to get syringes, needles, people, kit, tents, everything in the right place at the right time to now be able to do the vaccination. It is absolutely amazing the, the amount of work people have done. And, and the reality is none of our young people in schools will have ever had the opportunity to cheer on Scotland at a major tournament before. So here's hoping we've got something we can all look forward to next summer. And, and as you said, the, the scientists and, and the logistics people can, can help us make that happen. Um, so I have, I have cheered on Scotland at championships. And I tell you, you better get ready because it's the hope that kills you. <laughs> Um, uh, but on National Kindness Day, I think we'll we'll go with we'll go with the hope for for now. Um, many thanks for taking the time to come back onto the podcast um, and, and giving us all a wee update on coronavirus and, and its impact on schools. It really is appreciated. Um, and obviously, if if, uh, if there are any changes, hopefully you can come back and give us an update. And, and if the exams get cancelled, well, well, we can replay the clip. <laughs> You're very very welcome. It's good to be able to speak to you. Again. In the next episode, we'll be jumping into the DNA and the genome unit as we explore how DNA has played a role in the search for the Loch Ness Monster. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your preferred platform and follow us on Twitter, at BiologyHire. And remember, you can get 40% off all Lecky textbooks, revision guides and practice papers using the discount code LeckyPodcast40 online at www.leckyscotland.co.uk